Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. And hello, everybody, and welcome to Paul Lisnick behind the curtain here on WGN Radio. Yes, a break away from my TV world where I talk about politics all the time, and now I'm in the podcast world where I get to talk about my love, which is theater and the arts. And I got to tell you, one of the best shows I've seen in years is playing at the Goodman Theater. I'm sure at this point you've heard about it. Good Night Oscar, a new play by Douglas Wright starring Sean Hayes and several other incredible actors, which will just blow you away. So much so, in fact, I'm going to see it a second time uh, to bring some other folks because it is really that good. Let me introduce you to my guests for this show playing the role of, uh, well, I should say it's about Oscar Levant. That's what Goodnight Oscar means, Oscar Levant. And so playing the role of Oscar's wife, June Levant, is Emily Burgle. She joins me and playing the role of Jack Parr. We'll explain who Jack Parr is if you don't know, although I'm old enough to know, is Ben Rappaport. And the director of this show, Lisa Peterson, joins us as well. I'll be talking to the playwright, Doug Wright, just in a few days from now, so you'll be able to hear that interview separately. Welcome to all of you. Lisa, I want to start with you. Let's just put it out there for folks who, uh, listen, I've met folks who think that Oscar Levant is a fictional character. So tell us what this show is about, and Oscar was no fictional character. That's right. He, um, yeah, he was a real life person. Uh, he was a, he was a kind of a, he was a big he was a kind of an odd celebrity in the later part of the twentieth century. He was first a classical pianist, and he was a he he sought out and made friends with George Gershwin and became really one of his best friends and most important interpreters. And then he developed this other skill, which was uh, starting with radio, actually on radio and then on television as a kind of a wit, you know, so like a, someone who could, who could remember everything, who could zing everybody and, um, and give a very uh, dynamic interview on talk shows. So he became famous for those two different weird things, music and comedy. And the other thing about the real Oscar Levant that is true is that he struggled with mental health issues and he talked about it publicly. And he was one of the first American celebrities to do that. So that's really what all three of those things, I think, is what drew Doug to write this play and, and Sean to want to play this person, this real person. Yeah, and I have to tell you, look, when people come to see Sean Hayes, I mean, he's, look, he's from here anyway. A lot of people know him. They love him. And, you know, people are sort of waiting for, you know, Jack from Will and Grace to take the stage. That, that character does not take the stage in this show. This is truly a, a reach out for Sean that's really impressed everybody. I got a chance to spend some time with him after the show and, and, uh, and that evening. And it was just, just incredible to talk about. And in fact, um, actually, I'm going to stay with you for one more question, Lisa, because I would always figured, or I had figured that Doug Wright wrote the play. Play, sought out Sean. It all made sense. And Sean explained to me, that's not the way this happened. That's right. It was really Sean's idea. I, Sean had, it, well, it's no secret now. Sean, it, Sean happens to, to be um, a classical pianist as well as a great actor. And he had this idea uh, quite a long time ago that he was interested in playing Oscar Levant. And 
he had just he just had this instinct about it. And there's a story that well, Doug will tell it better than I can. But Doug was hired probably 15 years ago to write a screenplay for Spielberg about Gershwin, and Oscar Levant was a character in that screenplay. And Sean got cast in it, and then it never happened. So there were these kind of Oscar Levant, Doug Wright, Sean Hayes connectors. Uh, but yeah, this is this is Sean's brainchild. So he he and his and the producers, the New York producers on this project went to Doug, and Doug started working on this, I guess, about three years ago. And, and by the way, so I'm like this fanatic of signed books and all that. So as soon as I saw the show, boom, I picked up a, a signed copy of Oscar Levant, The Unimportance of Being Oscar, signed by him um, to add to my collection because I just think it's just amazing to sort of, you know, you become so fascinated with this character. And let's talk about the other character, Ben Rappaport. You play Jack Parr. I'm old enough to remember Jack Parr. For those people who today relate late night TV to Jimmy Kimmel and Jimmy Fallon and, and Stephen Colbert, and that's all fine. But when you move back in time to the world of, of um, Johnny Carson and Steve Allen and Jack Parr, talk about Ben, the, the, talk about Jack Parr, and obviously I had to do some research on him, who he was. And we should say, by the way, this story, and I'm cheating because Sean shared a lot of this with me, but I thought this, this story actually happened on the Jack Parr show. Apparently, it didn't happened on the Jack Parr show. Sean said it actually happened. It did happen, but it happened sort of in a game show environment, but they decided to move it over to Jack Parr because more people would relate. Ben, who was Jack Parr? And tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, Jack Parr is uh, the, I, I would, uh, I would draw a direct line uh, from all of the current late night hosts um, to Jack. Um, he was the pioneer of, uh, of conversation on on late night of of erudite conversation as, as well as uh, a, a great celebrator of talent and um, he also was he was just sort of this rebellious as Lisa and I were discussing in rehearsal kind of this punk rock guy um, and he had this this very affable uh, sort of uh, approachable midwestern charm that sort of allowed him to uh, kind of uh, Trojan horse, these really subversive and risque things and bring it to late night television. Um, and he, because he was able to have that platform as being Mr. Charming, they call, you know, they called him uncle Jack. Um, Cause he, he would be who people would fall asleep to every night, his, his voice and his show. And, uh, and in doing, you know, all the research I was doing, you know, I spent, uh, you know, most uh, a month, a month and a half, just, Every single night, falling asleep with Jack's voice in my ear, um, watching footage of his show. My wife would be in the other room watching her show, and she's like, "What are you doing in there, hun?" I'm like, "I'm watching Jack Parr." So it was like really <laughs> an immersive, immersive experience. And in, in your in your work with this, do you remember? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but there was a famous evening where Jack Parr himself, because we talk about Oscar Levant doing what he did, but Jack Parr had a moment of walking off his show. Yeah, absolutely, and and that had to do with um, the whole idea of uh, of network censorship, and um, you know, Doug often talks about that moment uh, with this play. That this play is sort of the um, the seed for that moment that happens a few years after this, um, because censorship is a huge theme uh, in our play as well. 
And Emily, you play June Levant, Oscar's wife, a very strong. I'm curious to know in your research what you learned about her because we see her as very strong. Um, she put up with a lot in that relationship, but of course, this is also the 1950s. So, you know, relationships were different back then, but June was very strong as his partner in life. Um, yes, I, I would agree with that assessment. I mean, I think, you know, we can we can take modern parlance like codependency and apply it to these relationships. But, um, you know, I think the, the relationship is very, very complicated from both sides. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that you talk about Jack walking off his show. So um, Oscar had his own show, and June was always his sidekick, literally sitting, like, right behind his shoulder at the piano um, every episode. And they had a marital spat on air, and she walked off the set. Um, and left the show, and then actually got her own talk show. Now, see, that I didn't know. That's fa that's fascinating. So it, did, were you able to find other clips of that on YouTube or whatever in, in terms of doing the homework? I wasn't able um, to find um, anything of the of June's show, but I was able to find a lot of Oscar's show featuring June. You know, the interesting gotcha. thing, though, is that you can have the... Everybody really loves to hear about, like, all the research, and um, we certainly did a lot of research in this, in this production, but with June being a lesser-known character, at first I was working a lot on her very specific mannerisms and voice, and Lisa and I came to the conclusion that um, when you're inventing a, 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 a real-life historical character in the, in the show, oftentimes it's not um, an an outright imitation, but more finding the spirit of the character. And I think in the case of June, that um, we found that it was more helpful to us to find her spirit than to kind of carve out an imitation of the June that exists on YouTube, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And that's, and, and Lisa, let me come back to you in terms of directing this and going back to this. You know, so you have Sean Hayes who shows up and everybody knows Sean and they have expectations about him and all that. So you have to direct him in a way that says, which not that he needs to say, but you have to have in your mind, the audience is expecting to see something and we have to blow them away with this, which you do. But I want to talk to you about the planning for that. And then you have these other mostly real life characters. I mean, the George Gershwin character, the Jack Parr, even June Levant, but some of these are, are, you know, better known publicly. That has to be different than directing, say, a, a show about, you know, fictional characters where the actors get to create somebody who never did exist. Yeah, well, I think, Emily, you, you started us off thinking about this um, just now. It's true that we were able to look at what these people actually looked like and sounded like on television, of course. So, so that's their public mm -hmm. persona. We're doing a play where we are behind the scenes with them, mostly, although we do see Jack Parr on camera. And so that freed us up to sort of go, okay, this is the image. This is, if anyone did know who Jack Parr was, this is what he, this is how he used his hands. This is how he spoke. This is how we loved to kind of use his, he, was it a stammer or a stutter, Ben, that he had in, as a young person? It was a, it was a stutter, I believe. Yeah. And I think my analysis watching Jack is that he then found a way to use his stutter to, to charm and to buy time. So you watch the research, you learn, you pick up things, you pick up what you want, and then you have to feel free 
to imagine what their life is like when they're not on camera, when they're, you know, living their lives, and they have to feel real. So, uh, you know, and I, I, I'm going to say this about Sean. He is a theater actor first. <laughs> That's what I think. I mean, he's amazing, you know, on television, but he has great stage acting chops, I would call them. And that means he, and, and I will say he's also very generous. So there was never any division between working with Sean and working with Emily and Ben and, and the entire cast. It was always, we are an ensemble. We are telling this story together. It was a delight. Um, and in terms of crafting his appearance and the shock of seeing Sean play a very different kind of character, that's what Sean wanted from the beginning. I will say that Sean uh, had done so much work even before I was involved on investigating Oscar Levant's peculiar mannerisms and speech patterns, um, some of which are then mm, kind of modified by the the drugs he's on, you know, the antipsychotic drugs he's on. So he came in with a lot of really developed characterization for that part. And, uh, you know, it, it, just like with everybody, we, we worked to like, how about a little more Oscar here? How about a little less Oscar? Now we, let's imagine Oscar as a young man. Let's, you know, let, let's humanize him in this direction or in that direction. So, Doug was the one who constructed the build to Oscar's entrance. You know, everyone talks about why, who he is, what just happened to him, why tonight is going to be different from any other night. And we knew that we needed to give Sean a, a star entrance. And, and the minute he opens that door, Sean and I started working on what's he busy doing? What's he thinking about? Because you can't think I'm making a star entrance. That's a sure fire way to like, you know, create so much anxiety for yourself that you can't do the thing. So he has to get busy thinking Oscar wants this. Oscar's looking for this. Oscar is hoping that X, Y, and Z happen. And um, the thing I love the most is when in that first scene of his, you know, he lands quite a few zingers and then he starts to talk about music and George Gershwin. And I feel like the play goes serious. Like it's funny. Yes, but let's, Let's go into this beautiful, musical haunting. And when Sean does that, I think that's where we really let the audience know he's a real stage actor. Watch. Let's get on the ride with him. What a, what a great explanation. And you're right, so many of his roles, uh, I've saw him in Promises, Promises, and of course some of the movies he's done, Three Stooges and all that. But he always gets to play this sort of lighter character, so it's a, it's a move away from what we know him for, but it's still lighter. This, of course, a total departure in what he's been doing. Ben, you, and by the way, as Jack Parr, um, I, I couldn't tell at the cast part, do you have that dimple or do we draw that in with makeup? <laughs> oh, the chin? Oh, yeah, that's, that's completely drawn in, my friend. <laughs> okay. Just, just wanted to confirm that. And, and by yeah. the way, I, I should, I should give kudos because you're, you're so well known for things you've done on television as well, outsourced, outsourced. And like many people, I am was absolutely obsessed with inventing Anna. So I just have to give you a wow. shout out for that because what an amazing series for people who are saying, wait a minute, he was in that. So tell them who you played. Oh, um, I, I played the infamous Billy McFarland of uh, Fire Festival thing. 
Right. Just it was it was just so great. But let me just follow up with a question here. So here you are now, live audience every night versus some of these you know fantastic uh, role. And I know you've done other theater, Fiddler on the Roof, which I think you and I should do together. I'll be Tevia, you can be um, Perchik. But um, <laughs> I'm just trying to cast that so that Lisa will will say, I love that idea. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> talk to me about the difference between being in front of the live audience every night, but then also having these great moments, uh, you know, on television. A very different experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I truly like not to be Pollyanna about it, but I truly love both mediums for very different reasons. You know, I, I, I started in the theater. I trained in the theater. It's my first love. And um, and there's just nothing quite like um, standing on a platform in front of many, many people uh, and engaging in a story with them. And, you know, the, and the audience in Goodnight Oscar truly is uh, another character in many, many ways. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just truly an invigorating experience. And I also love playing with my, you know, Emily and I have a lot going on in the first scene. Uh, and you know, we, we both talk about most nights after we get off stage, we we're like, I really like how you did that tonight. Or, or I felt like you were listening in a different way tonight. Um, so it's not about changing things, but sort of about just each night is its own unique experience. And in that way, a play is always alive. You know, it's never sort of like this frozen thing. It's just always, always breathing, which is kind of beautiful. And on television, you know, it's it, it's highly technical. Um, it's uh, and I'm I'm a nerd about history and learning about that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of you know really incredible. I mean, as we again as we talk about in the play, a lot of really incredible television history. Um, so yeah, it's it's just uh, two completely different things that I that I love for different reasons. And Emily, Emily, and I'll let me give a, a nod to you as well in your work in Cat on Hot Tin Roof and, and uh, The Marvelous Assistance Maisel and Shameless. Love that show. So you two have that, that you know, spectrum of experience. In the, and you can be Golda to, to my Tevya and Ben's Perchik. Um, <laughs> Lisa, take, take notes, Lisa. This is going to get cast here. Um, I bring this no, up in every to, interview I, I do. I want Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, really? You want to be Yenta? Okay. I'm good with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although you're you're much you know younger, right? Anyway, um, so talk to me as well about uh, if you can the, the relationship between your character June and Alvin Finney, um, be, because I mean back in the fifties, as I'm watching, I'm going, you know what? They've kind of reached out here. I don't know that that Oscar Levant would have had an African American you know caretaker type person back then, given the relationships in the fifties and stuff. Can you talk about that relationship and and a bit of that role? I mean, am I right that that kind of reaches over what might have been normal for back then? Um, I, I don't believe so, actually. It, it, it was very common, um, um, it was very common for black people to, um, to work in hospitals as, um, orderlies. Um, and it was very common for, um, people to have caretakers that, um, were black. Um, uh, in fact, it's, I mean, there's, it's, if you're familiar with Driving Miss Daisy, um, sure. that, that's another show that explores that relationship. Um, but it's something that we talked about a lot. I'm, I'm glad you um, brought it up because um, Alvin is a fictionalized character and um, we didn't want to um, present, or, and I know I'm speaking for Doug here, but all of us as actors spoke about this as well, in that um, these characters are operating in a white world, but there were oftentimes people of color behind the scenes that had a lot of power and um, were deeply involved in their lives. And Alvin is one of these people. In some ways, he has a lot of power and otherwise in other ways, as I think the play highlights and you've aptly pointed out, um, 
he he is also powerless. Um, he has a wonderful line, um, Alvin, played by um, Jamel Tillman, who is a genius. Um, he has a he talks to me and he says, you know, I I I'm trying to get to medical school, and if this doesn't work out for me and I don't get this white doctor's approval, then that my hopes are going to be dashed. So I think we get to see some of the consequences of Oscar's behavior that he was mentally ill, but in this wake of his, his mental illness, there were a lot of people, who, his children, the people who worked for him, his wife, whose lives were made very complicated and were often destroyed in places. So that's the complexity, I think, that um, June and Alvin bring to the character, which I was really happy to see because often we'll see plays about, you know, a white male genius and how difficult it was to be that genius but we don't see the people who had to prop him up and who perhaps didn't get to, to realize their dreams because of the times. She has a line yeah. where she said, I, you know, I had a film career too. And then it was expected that she was just supposed to give that up and, and support her husband. So that's, I like how the play um, put safely, I think puts um, the other characters in the world where they belong, but it explores it more deeply in terms of the story. Yeah, by the way, let me also do a, a shout out to Ethan Slater, who plays Max. Um, Ethan's actually, and you may even probably do know this, but you know, I interviewed him first when he uh, was in uh, SpongeBob, which opened in Chicago, started in Chicago before Broadway, and that was his first role. As I remember him telling me, that was the like, first role that he was sort of cast in uh, that was going to head to Broadway. Not a bad place to start, right, uh, in SpongeBob. Uh, Lisa, let me come back to you. Um, you know, sometimes you have playwrights, they write their play, they turn them over, and then the director does does her or his thing um here doug wright was in town he was here so and it's a new play can you talk about the interaction that you had i'm gonna ask our actors here but what interaction did doug have with you did he say lisa do your thing or did he say lisa that's not what i'm after in this scene (laughs) i have to be honest and say I, i work with new playwrights all the time i don't know a single living playwright who says here's my play do what you want (laughs) (laughs) well unless they're dead that doesn't happen Unless the playwright is dead, um, right? But, I mean, Doug was was is, is is a fantastic collaborator. I can't say enough about the way in which he he knows what he's doing. You know, he knows how to rewrite smartly so that he doesn't lose the gems that he's got in the play. Um, he does. He loves actors and knows how to listen to the actors questions and watch an actor struggle and then know how to, ah, that means that if I rewrite this in this way, I'll create a clear line for the actor or I'll complicate it in the right way. And that'll be more interesting. So he wasn't in rehearsal every single day, unless I texted him and said, Doug, we're struggling over this. Can you come join us? And then he was just staying a block away and he would happily come. He loves the process. And you're right to to point out it. I was kind of joking when I said no no writer just hands over their play and says, do what you want. D- Doug does love the process more than most um, playwrights. It's awkward for playwrights because they have an, in their, they have some play in their mind, and usually when you start rehearsing, you're, you're making something different. You're not making the play in their mind. You're using their script as a score, and you're making something different. Doug loves watching it develop, and so and he's not ego. He doesn't have an ego about his own work. So 
I don't know how he does that, but he, I'm sure he probably, he does have an ego, but he's a, just a great collaborator. So he was in the room often. Um, we would check in at the end of the day. Sometimes he would send me a sweet email where he would say just a couple of thoughts, <laughs> you know, and I would then put those into play the next day. But overall, Doug is a dream as a playwright in wow. the process. And his work with historical figures, just amazing, too. Again, War Paint and I Am My Own Wife, just amazing. So, Ben, I promise Lisa won't get mad at you for how you answered this question, oh, because, look, the plays, you know, I mean, we're almost reaching the end, so if she gets mad, we'll deal with it. But how did you balance direction or advice that you were getting from Lisa? And I, I imagine that at times you were sitting with Doug, who said, you know, here's some thoughts for you. Did you ever have a conflict in terms of, uh-oh, I'm getting different thoughts from different folks, and maybe they weren't together, so they, they, they didn't even know that was happening? No, and I'm, and I'm not just saying this because Lisa's on the line. No, I, um, we really didn't. There, it, it was a really, you know, as Lisa said about Doug, I, I think the same thing about Lisa. Lisa is an incredibly collaborative uh, director and creates a, um, an, uh, a really safe um, rehearsal room in an environment that, uh, that fosters um, creative discourse. And um, and really empowers her actors um, in in their opinions about what's going on uh, in the scene or with the character. And so uh, I, I really and Doug's the same way. Doug Doug's, um, Doug uh, made an analogy that he treats his characters in his plays like uh, uh, they're little toddlers, and each actor that's assigned to the character is sort of uh, the toddler's um, uh, caretaker. So there are little things that will come up, you know, with the toddlers that the caretaker can then go to Doug and go, hey, Doug, look, uh, we're having an issue with this aspect of this toddler. He's like, oh, let me help. Let me help you take care of that. So it's, you know, there's this lovely um, sort of collaboration, a collaborative spirit going on uh, between the two of them and and the actors. And uh, so, no, there was there was definitely never a conflict of interest there. Emily, can you start a fight here? Did you did you have <laughs> did you have any moments well, I, of different I, advice? I did throw a martini in Doug's face at Petalino's, <laughs> but that had nothing to do with the play. <laughs> so that sounds well. I hope you did that in front of the. I hope you did that in front of the first booth. My photo is up there, right behind you there, with the WGN folks. So I next maybe before you leave town, throw another throw a drink at my picture. Why? That's why I threw the drink. That's why I threw the drink. I was furious that my photo wasn't there. I love it. Well, let me ask you, Emily, you know, what about in terms of your interaction with the actors? How much did the actors talk to each other? How much did, you know, in a scene you'd have with Sean, you had so many scenes with Sean. Was there any collaboration between you two of, okay, hey, director and playwright aside, let's talk about June and Oscar and what we think? Well, you know, I think that the you know the great thing about Lisa is, and it's I'm I'm really thrilled to um, be you know hopefully moving this show to Broadway with Lisa because I've been saying for years that Lisa Peterson is one of the best directors out there, um, and so it's very special to me to you know be part of her um, eventual Broadway debut and. I think what we're learning is, and I don't want to be so um, gender specific, but I think that as you know, women um, can often be taught more to collaborate. And so really 
Sean and I or Doug and I, any any conversation we'd have would only be would only be enriched by speaking with Lisa. The wonderful thing about this process was that we could all come together and have our different ideas and have them mold and shape one another as, as opposed to being in opposition to one another. And sometimes we did have different ideas. Um, there's a scene where um, I have to get Sean dressed in the play. And right. we were really fighting that for a long time just because it's hard to do mechanically. And we would think, do we have to do this? Should we cut it? And I, w- I was always saying, We've got, we can do it. We can do it. Um, and then there's other, there's other moments where I, I, I would have thought maybe it should go this way. And then after speaking to Lisa or Sean, I realized that it shouldn't go the way in my head. And it's made me actually realizing just speaking to you live that one of the great things about being in theater is everybody has the play in their head. And then we all get together with lots of other people who have that play in their head. And when it goes well, we all create a singular vision and all the plays in our heads mold what everybody else is thinking. And we come up with something that's better and richer and more interesting than any of us could, could have come up with on our own. Fantastic answer. And I got to tell you guys, the, the you know what I love about doing this podcast, and I hope you have the same sense, is we get to go beyond the ordinary. I'm sure most interviews, what's the show about and what's it like playing Jack Parr, and we're done. So just thank you for allowing me to go a little bit deeper into the process and, and what you all do, because I think people, especially with this play, as I said, it's probably one of the best things that Chicago has seen in, in five or more years, and I, and I don't say that lightly. Um, and by the way, you'll be sharing this podcast show with the cast of The Prom, um, so if you guys get a, a few moments, walk on down the street to the Cadillac and go. I told them to come up and see you, so go on down and see the folks at the prom, because that'll be uh, also going on at the same time, which is fantastic. And um, let me remind everybody that um, that uh, Goodnight Oscar is playing through April 24th. That is an extended date, but that's it. It's going to close on April 24th, and I will be honest, it's sold out. However, what the Goodman is telling me is, that doesn't mean people don't cancel tickets, change tickets, do things like that. So yes, you should go to goodmantheater.org. Theater is spelled the proper British way, T-R-E at the end. Love when people spell it that way. Goodmantheater.org, or you can call the box office at 312-443-3800. That information is also on the homepage of the podcast. And Ben Rappaport, and by the way, I should have told you, I also have a signed Jack Parr book, which is his book called An Entertainment. Um, So... Got that as well. Yeah, you have to come over and see the clay. Oh, you all have to kind of come over and see my little Broadway and historical collection that I have here. Ben Rappaport and Emily Burgle and Lisa Peterson, congratulations to all of you. This is in such an incredible show. I know you know that. Uh, and uh, anybody who doesn't get to see it here, hey, too bad for you because you're going to go out to Broadway and have to see it there. Thank you, everybody, for your time. And thank you for sharing your insights. And I hope this has been a bit of a different interview for you in terms of getting to look inside a little bit. Well, much appreciated. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, yes, thank you so much. Thank That'll you. Thank you to our Chicago audiences, too. I just want to just give a shout-out before we leave to the Chicago audiences because I'm, I'm from Chicago, and they've just been fantastic. It's, it's a dream to work here. And I should say, yes, Emily, I, of course, you and I chatted. I know you're from Chicago, and hopefully you've been sharing some great Chicago spots with everybody. But you're right. The, the, show, the question that I ask almost everybody where they start Broadway shows in Chicago is, why Chicago? And Lisa, as you would know, the answer is clear. Because unlike with all due respect to New York, which is the theater town in the country, but you have a lot of tourism, you have a lot of all the people see shows for various reasons. But in Chicago, we know our stuff, man. We're serious. We get it. And I think as a director, Lisa, you learn from that too, right? 
Absolutely, no question. Yeah, it's a it's an audience that that goes to theater regularly, loves the live experience, and is smart. Emily, welcome home. <laughs> thank you. And Ben, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your show. Break legs nightly, and I will see you the night before you close once again. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from behind the curtain.